0: Welcome to the Andy Jacks Podcast, a reflection on educational leadership with tips on how to win in discipline, both for ourselves and when helping others. Consider hitting that like button, sharing with others, and letting me know what you think about this episode's topic. In this episode, I'm really excited to talk with Dr. John Grotto, one of my former professors at Virginia Tech. John is a really smart and really experienced school leader I was blessed to have him on my committee to approve my dissertation for my doctorate and a quick story john before we get into your credentials which are a very long list i'm proud to say uh is one that the completion of the dissertation is something just very unique you know having to you know in regular coursework you have assignments you have to complete those assignments with certain due dates and there's some clear criteria but when you get your dissertation it's a lot on you as a student to not only sort of dive into that topic you really want to dive into, but also actually get it done. You know, I don't know if you have tips on that for people out there, because I know I have colleagues that are doing this right now. For me, it was getting up every day, you know, really early and just working. I had to work every day. I got my coffee. I usually went to like three, or, like two or three cups of coffee and I would just grind before everyone got up. Because if I didn't do that, the chances of me doing it later were very slim. Or at <clears throat> nighttime when I was tired, it was hard. So for me, it was getting up early every, even if I did almost like a sentence,
1: just every day, a little bit of time gets that job done. What, do you have any tips for those going through dissertations? I, I do, and I'll illustrate those tips by telling you this story about my dissertation journey. And the story is one day I was reading this like 75 page document, and I poked at my dissertation when I had time so I get about 20 pages into this 75 page document and I realized that I had already read it before. And not only had I read it before, but I had highlighted uh, text had written notes in the margin, but I didn't remember because I hadn't done it. I hadn't looked at it in, I don't know, two or three weeks. So that was when I made up my mind that I needed continuity of thought. And I started getting up at five o'clock in the morning, three days a week. I was a superintendent of schools at the time, had three children and a wife and, um, I had, I had a very, very busy life, but I had to do this dissertation with no additional time. So I created time. That was when I started drinking coffee. And um, I would write from five to seven. Then my little girl who was about three or four would come sit on my lap and ask if she could help me. And she, I'd tell her to type an S and she'd look and look and look, and finally find an S and hold down a whole row of S's and thinks that she was pretty funny. Anyway, so once she got up, I was done. Um, but the, the major point is, I had continuity of thought because I could remember what I wrote a day or two before, whereas if I just poked at it when I had time, I, d- I didn't have time, and I had to start over and wonder where I was and reread. So continuity of thought is a, is a great uh, tip for people, and that's what worked for me, getting up three days a week, writing from 5 to 7, then going to work, and uh, you know, doing it weekends as well.
0: And that's a great, that's such a great point. I think I can really connect to that in so many ways on other things that we do as well. There are times when we we jump on something and come back to it at a much later date. And it does take a lot of time to sort of re reorganize or rethink or kind of catch up to where we were and you yes. just lose time. So exactly. there's that sort of the micro steps versus those like big jumps.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's really You know, I'm convinced that intelligence is a a secondary attribute to persistence when it comes to finishing the dissertation. So, if you create conditions in which you can steadily work at it and you are persistent, you will finish the dissertation.
0: That's a great point (laughs) I love that you're right, because you can you can have all the uh, best intentions and best intelligence that you want. But if you don't get things done, it sort of is irrelevant. Right. So you need to really put the the actions to the mindset to that background. And
1: and that same point, persistence is a great attribute for administrators as well. Uh, Oftentimes, there's a whole bunch of work that you don't really enjoy doing, but it's got to be done. Uh, You just have to persist and get it done, and then you can move on to something that is more enjoyable or more satisfying to you. But, um, you know, that's the nature of the work of a principal. Sometimes you deal with difficult issues and you have to persist through them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I always try to explain to my colleagues and remind myself that there's the things you have to do as well as the things you want to do. It's (laughs) important to do both. You have to do the things you want. I think it's important to find things you want to do because it keeps you fulfilled and having fun and engaged but you have to grind through those things you just have to do and you have to get those things done. And, um, because if you don't get the the basics done, the, that to-do list that is really important, maybe not to you, but to somebody else, well, then you really can't get into those want to do things. And that's where things start falling apart. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let me get into, uh, Dr. Grotto's credentials here. And I I'm happy to say it's a long list and I I'm I was always impressed with you as a professor, as a student. So thank you. Um, and so, Dr. Grotta served as a physical education teacher, athletic director, K-12 principal, assistant superintendent for curriculum instruction, and in 23 years as superintendent of schools and school districts in New York State, ranging from 450 to 4,400, uh, 4, uh, 500 students. Rather, since 2012, he served as associate professor in the educational leadership program at Virginia Tech. He has his doctorate in education administration from Teachers College, Columbia University in New York City. He has served as a member of New York State Education um, Commissioner, Commissioner's Advisory Council, Blue Ribbon School Review Panelist in New York and president of Champlain, right? Champlain Valley Athletic Conference, Mm -hmm. Executive Secretary of Essex County School Boards Association. He served as president of Virginia Professors of Educational Leadership and is Superintendent School Search Consultant. Um, so some, some things on the side that you said you like to do is to obviously read you, I don't know if you could be a professor without wanting to read. I think that's probably a prerequisite, right? And then, yep. um, avid bicyclist. So it sounds like you did some Epic. I got to hear about this cross. I'm going to ask you about this, uh, Epic cross country trip you're talking about here and, um, ice cream stops, <laughs> uh, hiking, kayaking. so it sounds like you're active, which I think is really cool in a, in a history buff probably along the way. You recently wore the U.S. Fulbright Scholar Award in the fall of 2021, and will be teaching at University of Zadar in Croatia? That's correct, yep. So you have a lot going on. One of the biggest things is, I know you do a lot of writing, a lot of articles, um, you know, and putting things out there, but you have your first book out now that just came out this spring, Inside the Schoolhouse, What Great Principals Know and Do. And we'll be talking a little bit about that because there's two specific topics I want to dive into from there that i'm really interested in something i talk about this podcast but let's go back to that this
1: epic cross-country trip you know what's that all about well i've always liked the bicycle ride and as long as i can remember i've been riding my bicycle and i've done a lot of really scenic and wonderful trips across new york state the length of vermont uh, down the east coast Uh, but my first summer after being a professor instead of being a superintendent I finally had time to do a long distance cross country trip. So I did a fundraiser for the American Lung Association and they provided all the routes and uh, the campsites along the way and food and all that. And I bicycled with a group of about 15 people from Seattle to Washington DC over the course of seven weeks. Uh, It was a great way to see the country.
0: Yeah, that, (laughs) that sounds amazing. You know, I, How do you find time to do those? You just have to schedule it. You just have to make it happen, right?
1: Well, you're not going to have time as a principal or as a superintendent. <laughs> yeah. You have to retire. And uh, I retired as a superintendent of schools before I became a professor at Virginia Tech, and that gave me a whole bunch of time off. Uh, super or Professors work nine months a year, typically, so that gave me three months, and I took about two of them to go across the country.
0: Yeah, how come you have to retire to do all these cool things? right? Like I would say people that are retired are busier than they were when they weren't retired. They find so much to do. Uh, I am finding a lot of really neat things to do. That's great. That's great. So, and I think it's important. I want to review all his credentials because this came up recently in another conversation that when you're listening to advice from somebody, and I really thought about this when going through the doctor, really, it really made me rethink things, which is we hear all this advice from people, all sorts of random people. And right now the noise on, on meet social media or the noise just on the internet, all these people telling us all this information that is super important and sort of validated in their own way. But the reality is we need to be very uh, careful at deciphering who we're listening to and where they're getting that information from. And so in this case, when you're listening to a speaker or in this case, an author here, a professor, really important to know their credentials, they know what they're talking about. And you definitely know what you're talking about here. Your experience shows that. Um, So we get into a couple of these topics in, in the book Uh, inside the schoolhouse, I thought were really interesting. Um, This idea of management before leadership and how that can lead into preventative discipline and ultimately being more present to deal with issues, hopefully before they come massive problems. So one of the chapters gets into this management preceding leadership. And you talk in here, You make you you quote Maxwell, which I love Maxwell, which is, make a point to continually search for a better way of doing things. And even when things are going well, to ensure that a better alternative has not been overlooked and to keep your creative talents in practice. What do you mean by this idea of management
1: preceding leadership, especially when there's so much talk on leadership itself? Yeah, well, let me back up and give you kind of a philosophical base for that. There was a really good report put out by the McKinsey organization called How the World's Best Schools Came Out on Top. And the essence of that 53 page report is that the quality of a school can never exceed the quality of its teachers. So if you keep that as a premise, then, of course, it's the principal's job to be an instructional leader, to keep building the talent of his or her teachers. But I wrote that chapter, Management precedes Leadership, because you can't be an instructional leader if you're spending all your time dealing with chaos and discipline issues and uh, management issues. So I believe as a fundamental, management needs to precede leadership. And I'll tell you a short story to illustrate that. And that is my first year or so as a principal, I'd spend My first two hours a day dealing with stupid bus discipline referrals because kids behave badly on the bus. And then I would deal later in the afternoon after lunch period with lunchroom referrals. And so I couldn't be an instructional leader because I was spending probably a third to a half of my day dealing with discipline issues. I finally got smarter and I um, met with the bus drivers and I found that some of them had great relationships with students and they never had any discipline problems. I found that others didn't even know the names of their kids on the bus. And because, excuse me, because the um, kids on the bus didn't have a relationship with the bus driver, they felt free to goof around. So I spent some time working with the bus drivers, teaching talking to them about how to develop relationships with kids. And the bus referrals dropped dramatically. And then I, um, looked at some data and I found out which classes were causing the most problems in the lunchroom. And I was a kindergarten through 12th grade principal. And so I kept the fifth graders in from lunch one day and we practiced lunch line behavior the whole period, the whole lunch period. And I taught them how to uh, greet the lunch ladies courteously instead of rudely. And I asked them how many times we did that. the answer was only once, They, they learned. And I asked teachers to stand outside their classes classrooms when um, classes changed simply to be in the proximity of students and because they were nearby students a lot of nonsense in the halls stopped. So the point of all that is I no longer had to deal with as many discipline issues as I did previously and therefore I could spend more time being an instructional leader those are, well, three great examples of sort
0: of tangible things that you did that others could definitely do. And there's so many times (coughs) we we overlook some basic things, like for instance, bus drivers. You know, I always feel that every single staff member in your school is part of that school team, cafeteria staff, kitchen staff, custodians, and anyone can play a part in building relationships with students. And you never know who that one person will be to make that relationship. I firmly believe that every single student needs at least one positive relationship with a staff member not just their colleagues their their peers but staff and that bus driver example is really good so when you're when you're talking about the instructional leadership versus you know spending time with the basic sort of preventative disciplinary things there's sort of this back and forth like i always feel like goes on with discipline which is either you know you have less discipline problems if your instruction is really is really effective which is true but there's also an element of well, you can't really have effective instruction if you have disciplinary problems. Mm-hmm. So, which is it? Like, what's the cart before the horse here? Because I feel like we always the pendulum swings back and forth on that. Well,
1: they are interrelated. In fact, one of the best disciplinary prevention problem or uh, solutions is for teachers to plan engaging lessons. Uh, but that being said, you know, discipline or not discipline, but inappropriate behavior occurs in many situations. In many places throughout the school. So that's why I wrote a, a chapter on that too, preventing disciplinary issues, because if you can prevent disciplinary issues again, the teachers can focus more time on instruction. So I, I gave about a dozen tips about how to um, prevent disciplinary problems on the premise that it's a whole lot easier to prevent a problem than it is to deal with the problem. And so that example of teachers simply standing outside of their uh, doorways when classes pass by that prevents nonsense. Um, I gave about five other disciplinary strategies or preventive disciplinary strategies in the book, um, like sitting next to kids in assemblies and planning for assembly behavior and planning lunchroom supervision, um, all sorts of issues like that that can prevent discipline from happening. And therefore, I mean, that's important, but um, again, if the principal doesn't have to spend time on disciplinary issues, and the principal can spend time coaching teachers to be more effective.
0: So that if they're doing that, so if I <laughs> want to say, I want to, I feel. What if I feel overwhelmed as a principal? Which is, I know I always feel that way, and probably a lot of principals feel that way. Leaders feel that way. Where do I start? How do I know where you said you picked bus drivers and hallways and those kinds of things? How do you think, you know, people should start this?
1: Where well, would they look? One way is simply looking at data. Uh, I bet every principal that is listening to this has to keep track of the disciplinary issues that they deal with. So are there any patterns or trends to look at? You know, uh, oftentimes discipline or not, excuse me, uh, bad behavior might occur in the locker room or the hallway or the lunchroom uh, or in school buses, uh, or maybe, you um, this is uh, no control, uh, doesn't have control over a classroom. And, and you'll see that there's a trend or a pattern that more discipline occurs from some teachers' classrooms and from others. So you look at any data and then if the, whatever the data tells you, then that's where you begin focusing your actions on to address those disciplinary issues. And then you talk to students. What do the students have to say? You know, are they having conflict with uh, another student or a teacher? And can those concerns be addressed? Um, And then again, you know, again, look at some data. What are some preventive disciplinary actions you can take at your school? Maybe you separate and I've done that. I've separated kids from one class to another or I've told teachers to uh, seat these four troublemakers at the four corners of the classroom so that they can't interact with each other. Um, And then, you know, one of the most fundamental ways of preventing disciplinary problems is for teachers to proactively develop relationships with students. Um, Students are far less likely to misbehave if they have respect and admiration for the teacher than if the teacher is aloof from caring with them. So those are some ideas. Yeah no that's
0: you're you're spot on there if there's so many times kids do things because they don't care enough about the person in front of them. They just they you know they don't really don't care about hurting their feelings and once once people care about that that sort of emotional connection they have with that adult, they're just likely, they're less likely to have those problems because there's actually that relationship and sense of respect like you talked about there. And we always say, well, kids just don't care. Well, they they do care. They really do. You just have to make them, you know, sort of personalize this experience. And if you treat them impersonal, well, they're going to treat you impersonal. So getting to know those students, getting them to know you, uh, sort of slowing down those lessons to really you know, develop that piece there as opposed to just grinding through, you know, if if your lesson looks the same, no matter who's in the room, well, then you're not personalizing it for those students, then they're in that room. Um, But one of those things that you, that you would talked about that there's so many times though, you know, you talked about being present and being involved that this one seat trend I'm seeing, I'm reading is, you know, if, if you see these patterns that you go, you know, as a school leader, that you help develop those relationships with the bus drivers, that you help move, you know, people into the right places that you work with those students in the lunchroom. And I think that's so critical because so many times we pull students out of environments to come to us, when in reality, we need to go out of our maybe normal, like principal office environment and go to them. There's so many times where we pull a student out of the classroom when in reality, the best solution wouldn't be that. The best solution is for me to sit in the classroom right next to that student. I'd probably get Mm -hmm. more bang for my buck. The kid would probably be on task a lot better, um, Mm -hmm. still be learning. And otherwise, they're with me anyway.
1: So I might as well go to them. So I think just that sense of presence is such a big deal. Yeah, and, and that, that leads me to a very fundamental point. The principal is always, always a role model for teachers and for bus drivers and for students and everyone else. So you as a principal have to treat kids with dignity and respect all the time, even if their behavior was egregious. Uh, and kids respond in kind. Uh, you know, Kids who come to the principal's office are often agitated. They're upset that they did something wrong. They're upset that they got in conflict with a teacher or a classmate. And so you still have to treat them respectfully um, I teach people in my classes that treat kids as if they were your own, uh, and if you do treat kids as if, as if they were your own, and your kids often misbehave, mine did, uh, you know, you don't crucify them. You, you find ways to help them think through and make better decisions, and in fact, I think that was some of the most significant work I did as a principal, was dealing with kids who behave badly, and talking with them about, you know, why do they make those decisions? What decisions could they make better in the future? What, what do they want to do in the future? Did their actions today help them hurt them? Um, you know, What strategies can they employ when they feel agitated? Um, so even though kids behave badly, I treated them with dignity and respect and they reciprocated that, that respect.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And having them have that ownership of their own progress, their own journey that they can have some sense of self-efficacy, and that they can control those things around them is such a critical element. There, yeah. so many times we just do to, we, we do things to kids as opposed to helping them do things for themselves. Yeah, um, you know that sense of being a parent is there's also this element of you know as a parent, I'm equally <laughs> loving and inclusive. Like as a parent, I don't just kick kids out for good. You always pull them into the fold. But I'm also tough. You got to be tough. I think sometimes we, we do this thing about like, you know, loving our kids and everything's just so like lovey-dovey. No, as a parent, I'm tough. If I call them out, if they're not doing something right and I help teach them the right way to do it. But while I'm doing that, I'm not kicking them out of the family. You know, it's like, they're still involved and they're still part of the family. Right. So I think that right. is a good model. I guess if you're a good parent, maybe you know, which I
1: don't know if I am all the time, but you know, yeah. I know I try with my three kids. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a strategy that worked for me. And that is, um, I kind of like listening to classic rock and roll music. And, and so if I was in my office listening or by myself working, I'd have the radio on, uh, on my computer with the classic rock and roll music. But if a kid came to me all agitated and upset, I'd switch from the classic rock and roll to classical music. And then I would say to the kid, listen, I've got to finish these two or three emails and I'll be with you in about five minutes. And I would let the kid sit there and listen to classical music for about five minutes. and then I would, And that would give him time to calm down. And then instead of saying, well, what did you do? I would say, tell me what happened um, because they aren't always to blame. Um, so anyway, the, the point is I treated the kid respectfully, gave him time to calm down, listen to some classical music. I pretended I had emails to do. I typically did anyway um, and let the kid defuse a little bit. And then, then he could talk about what the situation was and what he did and what the decisions were. And then, yes, I would come back to that point of, Hey, you know that if you swear at the teacher, there's a consequence for that. You know that, right? And of course they knew that. But so I wouldn't let kids off the hook. I wouldn't um, you know, let them slide just because I had a relationship with them. There was still a consequence. And I would try to make the consequence consequential for them. Uh, typically I would, I would put kids the first time around or maybe in the second or third time around in what I call the thinking chair in my office. Um, so I put this 24 inch desk next to the wall. So if the kid looked to the left, he'd see a desk. If he looked straight ahead, he'd see the wall. If he looked to the right, he'd see a filing cabinet. And I'd say, think about what you can do next time instead of swearing at the teacher or instead of hitting your friend. Um, And they typically would. I was a kindergarten through 12th grade principal that worked well with kindergarten kids that worked well with 11th graders. Uh, So, you know, I let them think through better decisions. And if they turned around, they'd see me. And I'd say, all right, let's talk again about what you did and what you might do next time how's that, you know, what decisions can you make that will help you not hurt you? And I'm pleased to say that many kids became self-directed rather than self managed rather than managed by me.
0: Right. That that point about diffusing, you know, there's too many times where it's like the kids right in in an emotional tough environment. And then we like pepper them with questions about what happened, what they do, all these things. In reality, they just need time to just Bring these emotions back in check and help self-regulate before then we can talk about sort of that thing. You can't be in the middle of an emotional problem or a fight and then all of a sudden be reflective at the same time. We couldn't do that as adults. If we've ever gotten in an argument with somebody or ever gotten in some turmoil, you can't immediately reflect in any effective way in that situation. You need time to think and to get out of that situation for a moment before then you can look back with any sense of sort of, you know, um, you know, kind of reflective nature on what happened and what you could have done better. But if we're asking kids to reflect immediately, that's it, not very effective.
1: Uh, yeah, I want to expand upon that point a little bit. And that is um, some principals think that their job is to process kids. You know, every school likely has a discipline code. If you do X, then the consequence is Y. Well, heck, you don't need a master's degree or a doctorate to do that. You just need to be able to read well. Um, and, and so I think a, a viewpoint, a philosophical basis is as a principle, we have an opportunity to help kids make better decisions, to help kids make decisions that are profitable for them rather than destructive. And we should take that opportunity to talk to kids and build a relationship with them so that we don't merely process them. Sure, they're going to get a consequence, but along the way, we can develop a relationship with them and they can see us as a as an advocate and a trusted ally for them rather than somebody who merely administers consequences. Uh, Because, man, as a K-12 principal, I found that eighth and ninth grade boys in particular were immature and did inappropriate things. Well, I view it as part of my role to help them along that path of maturity. And uh, I'm pleased to say that that worked in many cases. Yeah, and I'm sure it did. And
0: and understanding that that is also developmentally appropriate behavior in a lot of ways. Kids do things that we're all like, how could they do that? But the reality is, oh, yeah, that's exactly what they should be doing at their age. And it's our job to help corral that. Like I became, I guess, a successful adult, but not because I didn't make mistakes. I made plenty of mistakes and my teachers helped keep me in line. And I think that's the biggest difference in success in life isn't just that, you know, we sort of learn from these things, we have those people in our lives that keep us in line and help us learn from these situations to be better as adults. But what they're doing is developmentally appropriate. And we can't be so shocked and like, and, and, and amazed at this behavior, we should be expecting this behavior and be ready to, um, on our end, emotionally deal with it, and sort of physically uh, take actions to help them along the way and not sort of overreact, you know, when they do something, and then we overreact and kick them out and do all these other things. what's sort of like, well, you knew that was gonna happen in a way, like you knew somebody was gonna do that. You know that was, So what are some steps in the future as a school that we could take to either prevent or to address that in a more effective manner?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You, uh, again, I, I emphasize the point, treat kids with dignity and respect, treat kids as if they were your own uh, because every, every kid most often or often will make a mistake and we can't crucify them. We have to say, okay, Let's make better decisions. Let's talk about what we can do to make better decisions going forward, because this isn't gonna, isn't gonna work if you keep swearing at the teacher. Or, and you know, I would add to this that sometimes, and I would uh, generalize by saying boys in particular, goof off or do something to get kicked out of a class because that's a cooler thing to do than it is to say, I really don't understand what the teacher is saying. I really don't understand this math or this vocabulary, whatever the teacher is talking about in history. I don't know what this means. And so if you develop a relationship with students and I've done this, I've I've talked to kids and said, listen, do you really have a reading problem? Do you really have a problem that, that causes you not to understand this? Would you like me to get you more help in learning how to read well? Um, do you really not understand this math? You Want me to set up some extra sessions with the teachers to, to help you uh, work through what you don't understand? And they will, they will say yes, because really sometimes their bad behavior is a charade. It's a facade for not understanding what's going on in the classroom. But you'll never know that if you don't develop a relationship with the student.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the, I believe truly in my heart that every child wants to be successful and that they do actions, just like you said, out of self-preservation. And if we can help them be successful, then other things will come around. And that's why we talked earlier about the cart and the horse. I think it is so interrelated because, yes, you have to address issues and help them reflect on behaviors and that. But, but on the other side of it, the more successful a child is in school, the more likely their behavior is going to be better. Because the worse their instructional things get, the worse academically they are, it's very likely that they're going to start behaving poorly, too. So Hmm. making sure that both ends social, emotionally and behaviorally go up, but also academically. You're not going to achieve great results behaviorally with the child if their academics are bad. It's not going to happen. We have to really support them academically as well to achieve better so that they feel better. It's like, you know, you play better, you feel better. It's one of those Mm -hmm. Mm things. So... It was great talk with you today. Make sure that you check out Dr. Grano's book, Inside the Schoolhouse, What Great Principals Know and Do, and how can they reach
1: out to you and find more information about you? Um, well, my email address is john1112 at vt.edu. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, but if you, anyway, if you email me that at that Virginia Tech address, john1112 at vt.edu, I can share info about any topic people wanna know about. Um, You can check out the book on Amazon or on Google. Google in particular has um, a bunch of excerpts from a half a dozen or so chapters that will give people a feel of the book to see if it is is something that's valuable to them or not. That's great.
0: And you're getting it from an expert here. So very knowledgeable and experienced both at the same time. So it was great talking to you. Thank you so much for being on today on the show. And uh, again, I thank you very much for approving my dissertation and giving me advice and <laughs> feedback. And I was like, whatever this committee says for me to do, I'm going to do because that's what it's going to take. So I appreciate that. So all right. <laughs> so, so all right, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this episode's topic. Share with others and let me know what you think on social media. You can find me underscore Andy Jax. Read more on leadership, school culture, and discipline at andyjacks.com. We're in this together. So reach out if you need anything. Have a great week. Nice talking to you.